The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. As you know, we have started this series through teaching through this large book, uh, this narrative, this gospel story. Uh, we started in Advent of last year, and we will spend uh, the vast majority of 2017 in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we will finish up in 2017. I'm pretty confident um, that we will do that. And so we are, we're now in, in chapter 9 as we're looking in a short series of who is Jesus. We're answering the question, who is, who is Jesus? What is, who is the real Jesus? What is, he, what is Matthew, the writer of this narrative, of this gospel account, what, is he, what does he aim to teach us and have us know about Christ? Um, and today's scripture is really from chapters 8 through 9. We won't be reading chapters 8 through 9. Uh, we'll read uh, chapter 9, 1 through 11, and which gives a good summary of, of, this, of this, these two chapters. So let's read now Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This passage really acts as a summary, as I mentioned, of chapters 8 and 9, and I think that this might be the, the basic point of chapters 8 and 9. The basic point of all of this is that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus has authority over all. Just think of the things that cause you to go to God, uh, that cause you to desire to go to God to ask for something that he would, that he would engage in your life. Maybe it's for sickness. Maybe it's for natural disaster or financial stress. Maybe you go to God for, for the parenting discouragements. You feel discouraged as a mom or a dad, and you, you go to God for those things. Maybe it's loss of relationship or uncertainty of the future or even spiritual frustration and doubt in your life. And so you go to God for these things. Even if those listed are not the things that, that are, you're currently dealing with, there's this there's a number of struggles that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And Jesus would have us believe that he is he's actually Lord over all of it. He's sovereign over all of it. He is, actually has authority by his nature and power and rule over all of creation, things seen and unseen, that, that he rules over it all. Jesus wants you to know that there's, there's good news for what, what is in your life that you would go to God for, what you might be struggling with, what concerns that you have for the present or for the future or even things you're struggling with from the past. There's good news. Right now, I'm struggling with blank. What is your blank? Right now, I'm struggling with blank. 
you take a moment and think about what is on your heart, what's weighing on you, what uncertainty do you have for the future, what pain do you, and sorrow do you have for the present. And Matthew wants us to know that something about Jesus, that he has authority over all, that Jesus is Lord of the blank. And in fact, maybe let's make that our sermon title for today. Jesus is Lord of the blank. Lord of your blank. What is that? Chapters 8 and 9 are, placed, uh, are packed with these examples of Jesus' power and authority over all things, over everything. And sometimes, sometimes Matthew tells a story, as we've, as we've seen before, he tells it chronologically. He tells us how things have happened in the space of time, and then other times Matthew is telling us a story based on themes. And so here these events aren't happening all in a row, as we see these ten miracles just in these short couple chapters. But Matthew is designing to show us in this jam-packed space of a theme that, that Jesus is, has power over, over everything. Chapters 8 and 9 consist of 10 separate miracles. And we won't dwell specifically on, on picking apart each one of these miracles, but rather the whole of Matthew's argument that Jesus is Lord over all. And here's the, here's the flow of Matthew's argument and, and the miracles that do happen in, this, in these passages. We see that Jesus has authority over sickness. He heals a person with leprosy, which is a, a debilitating skin disease with a simple touch. He heals a, a man who's paralyzed when the paralyzed person wasn't even with Jesus. Just by a word, Jesus commands that this man would walk, and, and it happens. We see that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. He heals a paralyzed man in the beginning of chapter 9, as we read. He, heals, he actually restores a young girl to life who was previously dead. He heals a woman who suffered from 12 long years of bleeding, was healed by touching Jesus' clothes. Blind men are given their sight, and a man unable to speak now speaks for the first time. We see that Jesus has authority over the natural world and the, un and the supernatural world, the invisible world. We see that Jesus has authority to calm the waves and the sea. We see this in one of, of the two famous passages in scripture where Jesus calms the ocean, calms, calms the sea and the storm. The disciples exclaim in this story, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? We see that he has power over the supernatural world, the things that we can't see. We see a man, these two men who are demon possessed. We see that Jesus shows his absolute authority over the supernatural world. When he says something, the demons obey. At the command of Jesus' words, everything obeys. When God speaks, every, the world listens. The argument is over. When Jesus commands something, the argument is over. And embedded within all these, these ten different miracles, these amazing uh, things that Jesus does, are examples of care, carefully placed examples of what it means to follow Jesus and respond to him and to be a disciple. And what Jesus is calling people to do as, they, as we trust in him. And so Matthew is out to make a very bold point. If you truly knew and understood and, and trusted in Jesus, who he really was, you wouldn't, you wouldn't worry about anything. But you would have a, a peace and a joy and, and a faith that was unshakable. And you would follow Jesus wherever he might lead you. You would do that because of who you believed he was, who he was, and what he was capable of doing. Luke tells this story. Uh, actually more with a lot more detail as we see uh, some, of these, some of these stories. Uh, we'll get to that in, in just a, a bit. But if you're, if you're not seeing tremendous life-changing faith in your life, 
It might not be because of a lack of elbow grease. It might not be because you're not trying hard enough. It might not be because you're just weak or tired or having a really hard day. It's because you don't understand truly the reality of Jesus and who he is. Because if you really understood, if you really understood fully what God understands, you wouldn't worry about anything. If your perspective was that of God's, as he sits, as Jesus sits enthroned in heaven, and you saw with the perspective of God, with all sovereignty and eternity and, and, and lordship over all, what is going on in your life right now would be bearable. More than that, you would see God's good in it. Look at the, look at the faith of the centurion uh, and see what's happening. In, in, in chapter 8, I will read this, this miracle here in chapter 8, if you'd want to flip over one page, uh, 5 through 13. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came before him, forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. That's what Jesus said. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, my, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I want to show you what's going on in this passage, which is utterly amazing. This, this army, this general in, the arm, in Rome's army comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son is suffering. My son is suffering. Can you come help? And Jesus more or less says, give me a second. I'll, uh, yeah, just give me a minute. I'm working with something. I'll be right there. And, and, the, and the soldier says, well, what does it matter if you, if, if you can't come right now? Just, just say it and it'll be done. I, you don't need to wait. Just do it. I'm just asking you to do it because you have the authority to do that. And Jesus, his jaw drops. I'm imagining his jaw drops. If you notice, there's not many things in Scripture that really surprise and amaze Jesus. But this does. And the man says, what does it matter if you can't come right now? Just say it and it will be done. And Jesus says, he looks, it's, he looks at all the crowds and he says, look at this man. This is the smart one. He got it. He figured it out. Do what he just did. Believe how he just believed. What is it? What is going on with this man? He says, I get it. I'm, I'm in charge of people. I'm in charge. And when I say go, they go. And when I say stay, they stay. And when I say come, they come. So Jesus, just do it. If you are Lord, then just do it. Jesus says, no one. No one's as smart as him. He wins. He's amazed at faith. He's amazed at that kind of faith. What was the faith? It was faith in understanding who Jesus is and what he's capable of. Of doing what is so special what's so alien about this faith that was that was amazing to Jesus his faith was assurance of things hoped for it was the confidence and the conviction of things unseen as Hebrew 11 quotes it was an understanding of who Jesus was that he was capable of doing whatever he wanted to do because he believed that that he was Lord that he was in control there's these kinds of prayers that were that are prayed for for God's people all through Scripture that we would not just have more elbow grease, that we would just not work harder at our faith, but that we would understand like the centurion. You see, Paul and Jesus even pray for these for us. In Ephesians chapter 3, 
Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Paul bends his knees and he prays in a beautiful prayer and he sums up his greatest desire for God's people. And what is it? It isn't that they would be free from discomfort. It wouldn't be that their specific prayers would be answered, but they, they would know with full knowledge who Jesus really is. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. When Jesus spoke, he spoke these words and lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is saying, God, you have given me everything. You have made me Lord over all. I pray that, that they would know that about me and that their life would, be, would rest in that fact, that, that, they would, that their relationship would be founded upon Relationship with knowing who I am. So if our, if our faith is weakened, if our joy is failing, if our hope is dim, it is not a matter of a lack of effort, but a lack of true grasp on who Jesus is and what he has done. This is what Matthew wants us to know about Jesus. You will never have strong faith. You will never have lasting, robust, life-changing faith without true understanding without deep understanding of Jesus. It's not like saying, well, yes, I, I understand what the gospel is. I just need to work at it more. No, I don't think you do understand what the gospel is. It's hard for people to hear. When they say, I know the answer. I just need to apply it better. It's hard when people hear, no, you don't get it at all. In fact, I, I talk a lot, about, a lot with people and meet with them for for many different reasons, when there's struggle, when there's doubt, when there's confusion, when there's sorrow in their life. And I, and, and I, I say this a lot, and, and I, I'm starting to doubt it because it's highly ineffective, what I, my counsel that I give. But I keep doing it. But I, here's how it goes. I say, do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that he cares for you? Do you believe that he has, he has died for you, not based on your record or your worth or your character, but in spite of those things, he loves you unconditionally, and he has given you his spirit to, to, as, a, as an assurance of his, his, his faithful love to you, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, and you don't need to work for your salvation anymore. Do you believe that? And they say, yes, of course I believe that. And I reply with, no, I don't think you do. Because if you did, you, you wouldn't have these feelings. You wouldn't have these doubts. You wouldn't be working so hard to earn your favor with God through your record, through the outcome of your righteousness and your character. You cannot say, yes, I believe the gospel and I understand it, but I just need to get better at doing it. No, I don't think you do understand. You see, it's an issue of understanding, true understanding of the truth of Jesus, like this centurion. This confidence in, a, in an understanding of who he is, that he can do whatever he wants by simply a word, by simply a thought. And until we are perfect, and here it's, this isn't to, to make us feel guilty or make us feel convicted in this, but realizing until we are perfect, we still have so much to learn about Jesus. Until Jesus comes and, and reveals himself to us and makes us know fully 
as, as, as fully as we are known by him, you and I have to grow in understanding. Until we're perfect, we have to learn. We have to continue to seek to understand. And here, here are some of the arguments that Matthew seeks to make in this passage. One, because Jesus is Lord over all, he alone can meet our greatest need. We need to understand that because he's Lord over all, that he is the source of our, our greatest, he's the greatest solution to every problem. He can meet our greatest need. Let me show you in chapter 9, 1 through 7, as we read, there's this story of these group of friends. And, and here's a story where Luke kind of tells us a little bit more about it, uh, but Matthew shortens it a little bit. The group of friends that bring their paralyzed friend to meet Jesus. And Jesus is in a home, and he's gathered with a crowd, and they want, to, they want their friend to be healed, obviously. And so they go up to the roof, and they rip a hole in the roof, and they lower the paralyzed man down to the feet of Jesus. This is what Luke tells us, and, and Jesus looks at the paralyzed man as he's lowered down. He looks at him and says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Do you see what happened? That's not what they were looking for. That's not what they were looking for. The, paralyzed, the paralytic and the friends were not after Jesus. They were not after the Jesus that they found. They were coming to Jesus for something else, but who they found was something completely different. I think that's true for us. The, the Jesus that we often pursue and the reasons why we go to Jesus for certain things is often the Jesus that we don't find. We find someone slightly and sometimes greatly different. They're coming to Jesus for one thing, but they found a person very different. I remember going to a Target one day and, and another, customer comes up to me, or, uh, another customer comes up to me and just starts talking to me about a certain product. They just start speaking, like, you know, without even saying hello or anything, just start speaking and they're holding two things. Says, Can you tell me the difference between these two things and, and, and wh why, why the prices are different? And, and is this better? Would you recommend this product over this product? And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this person? Who does this person think I am? And I look down and I'm wearing khakis and a red polo. <laughs> Never wear that out. Don't wear that outfit to Target. They'll put, they will put you to work. See, the person they were looking for and hoping for was not the person that I really was. They were coming to me for one thing, but, but I could not offer what they were coming to me for. And see, that misunderstanding is, is, is often critical. And these, these, these paralytic and the friends were coming to Jesus, but the Jesus they found was very different. Is that true for you? Often as we grow in our faith, that is often true. We realize that, wow, I came to Jesus for this, but what he gave me was so different and so much better. And honestly, it was what I truly need that I didn't even know I needed it. Put, your shoes in the, put yourself in the shoes of the paralytic. He's thinking, today, today's the day. Today, I hope I'm healed. Today, I get to walk for the first time. Today, I get to walk home. And Jesus gives me, gives me, he gives me something that I don't even ask for. Either, either Jesus in that moment is being cruel and unloving, or he's being incredibly generous and abundantly kind to give him what he actually truly needed. Now, of course, he, he gives him what his heart desired. He also, he does heal him and he walks home. But Jesus makes a point of saying, this is almost like icing on the cake. This is like, this is not the main point. The main point is, what is greater, to forgive his sins or to get him to walk? But to show you that I will also give him his greatest need, I'm also going to let him walk home. But the best work I'm doing here, the best miracle I'm doing here is forgiving him. And he needs to realize that and we need to realize that too. This paralytic finds something that he wasn't even looking for but what he got was the key to the whole story. We often come to Jesus for one thing, and he ends up giving us something different, but he gives us something that we actually need. Of all the good that Jesus has done in this passage, of all the miracles that he's performed, uh, there's a work that is far greater than any of those miracles, and it has to do with the, the, the suffering behind the suffering. 
It has to do with the suffering that is behind the reason that we often come to Jesus for the things that we're struggling with. It's Jesus' authority over sin. It's Jesus' defeat over sin and releasing us from the bondage of our suffering beneath the suffering. Jesus wants us to know that our suffering, our ultimate suffering is never physical. It's, it's never emotional or relational. Our ultimate suffering is never political. It's always spiritual. And Jesus was claiming to bring the greatest news of all. He was claiming to have power to reconcile sinful people with a holy God. The suffering beneath the suffering that Jesus heals that is more important than any kind of suffering you and I could ever face. Are you having a hard time grasping that? Do you have a hard time grasping that sometimes in your life, that really the forgiveness of sins is the greatest thing that you can have from God? If you, hear, if, if, if you hear God say to you, I love you and forgive you, and you reply with, yes, that's really great, but, but what I really need is blank, then we're missing it. If we hear God say, I love you and I forgive you, and we say, what else do you have? There's so much to learn. And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. This is a great uh, traditional rabbinic invitation. A rabbi would say to his disciples, he would say, go and learn what this means. It was a common phrase. They would say, so he's saying, I want you to go and think about this. I want you to go meditate on this. Go and reflect on this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We reflect far too little on the internal things of our heart because we're so obsessed with the external things in our life. Jesus knows that. Matthew knows that. People haven't changed in thousands of years. It is so easy to be obsessed with the external things in our life. And we come to God for the external things in our life. God, would you fix these external things? Will you fix what this person is doing to me? Will you fix this pain in my life? And Jesus says to us, I want you to go think about something. I want you to go think about the internal things. I want you to go think about the internal things. Take your focus off of the external things for a moment. And that is so hard for us to do. We're so in danger of always having a stunted faith, a doubting faith, because we have a faith that is all external. When was the last time you asked God and prayed for God and pleaded with God to, show, to, to give you something that was not external but internal? Think of the last 10 things you prayed to God for. How many of those were external things? How many were internal? Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, internally sick. Internally sick. We need Jesus because we're internally sick, and that's our greatest problem. You see, we often go to Jesus for, for many things, but what we find is, is somebody and something very different, but it is the somebody that we ultimately need, and it's the something that we ultimately need that we often neglect. We need, those, we need that internal mercy from God. It's like when I go to Costco, Costco and Target, those are like my two. I go think all I need, all I need is just some pita chips and some hummus. And somehow I get there and I leave with like a 12-pack of gardening gloves and a portable printer. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? You go for one thing and you leave with something completely different. You may be saying something like that right now where, God, if you could only fix this in my life, I would have peace. And Jesus would, would, would say to us, no, you wouldn't. God, if, I would, if you would only answer this prayer, then, then everything would be set right. And he would say, no, it wouldn't. 
Lord, if you would only give me this different thing, and if this didn't happen the way it happened, if you could somehow reverse it, Lord, my hope is that you will change the effects of what has happened, then, then I will know that you are Lord. And he would say, no, you wouldn't. You're coming to me for something different, and what you find will be different. There's a suffering beneath the suffering that Jesus has come to fix, and it alone is the key that unlocks the door of, our, of all of our suffering and all of our questions. It's the thing that unlocks the door to an unshakable faith that believes like the centurion believed that, Jesus, you can do anything, and so I'm not worried. Just say it, and it's going to be done. We're only as secure as our, our greatest treasure. We're only as unshakable as our, as our greatest treasure, the thing that we hope in the most. If our greatest treasure in our family, then if our family becomes vulnerable and, and if it becomes broken and fractured, then we, then we suffer and we lose hope. If our greatest treasure is our home, then if a tornado or fire destroys it, then our hope is gone. If our greatest treasure is a person, we'll come to realize that that person is miserable and sinful and we lose hope. But if our greatest treasure is Jesus, then your greatest treasure is Lord of all, and knowing and understanding him, which is what Jesus prays for and what the Apostle Paul prays for, then we will be as secure in the love of God as Jesus himself, which is pretty secure, which is ultimately secure. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift. It's his greatest gift that, that he gives to us, which we often don't even come to him asking. The simple fact that, that your sins are forgiven is, is the tip of the iceberg. Would you think about what does that mean what was Jesus communicating to this paralytic when he says, your sins are forgiven? It was like, great, that, thank you. Thank you. What, what, is, what does that mean? What are the implications of the relationship that we have with a holy God that he would forgive our sins? Well, one, it means if we are forgiven, that means that God has not forget, forgotten us, but that he pursues us. Because the only way to be forgiven is not by us pursuing God and, and, and initiating with Him, but the Bible tells us that it's, it's because God initiates with us. So if God forgives our sins, it means that He took an interest in us and pursued us and did not forget us. If your sins are forgiven, if you trust in Jesus, you need to know that God has not forgotten you. That He's still initiating with you. That He is still pursuing you. It means that God does not hold your past or present or future sins against you, but he's gracious to you. His unconditional love is yours. If your sins are forgiven, it means that God will complete the work that he's begun in you and he's not finished yet. That even if you're struggling, that even if you're weak, even if you grow tired, that if your sins are forgiven, God is not done with you and you don't need to give up hope. If, if he has forgiven you, it means that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And if your sins are forgiven, it means that because he has kept his best from you, every, or because he has not kept his best from you, that everything that he does give to you is good for you, and everything he keeps from you is because he loves you. That may be the hardest one of all to really think about. If, you're, if your sins are forgiven, then the things that God keeps from you is an act of his love. And the things that he allows to come to you, into your life are an act of his love. I can't tell you how to understand that completely, but it is something I can tell you that is true. Sometimes I wonder, that God, this was an act of your love to give me the life that you've given to me, an act of love to give me the suffering you've given to me, an act of your love to give me the parents you've given to me. It doesn't seem like something loving to do. What has God given to you? Can you grasp that that's an act of your love? 
What has God kept from you? Can you grasp that that's an act of his love for you? It's so easy to say, that's great that you've forgiven my sins, but what else? What else? We're so amused with external things. We're so amused by, by worthless things that when Jesus offers himself, we get bored with it. When Jesus offers us forgiveness and life eternal with him, we say, it's just not doing it for me. How complacent have we become? How, how bored have we become with just the things of this world that when God offers himself, we're not completely content and joyful? Another argument that Matthew makes is this, that because Jesus is Lord over all, we don't have to be afraid. He doesn't, preserve, he doesn't keep the best from us, but gives it to us. But because he's Lord over all, we don't have to be forget, for, afraid for what happens in our life. So there's a story of the demons in, 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 our, in our passage. We didn't read it, but one of the miracles was that Jesus cast out demons from, from two men. And the demons know Jesus, and they're terrified. The demons have terrifying fear because of their belief. Please reflect on what the demons say. I'll just tell you what the demons say. So Jesus comes up to these two men that come out of this crypt, and they're possessed by demons. And the demons respond to Jesus. They see him and say, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? Are you here to torment us before our time? This is like, this is an amazing phrase. And I, and I want you to think about what this means. This means they know that Jesus wins. They see Jesus and they say, holy shnikes, right? Or to some, some rendition of that. They say, we know who you are and we know that you win. Are you here to just torment us until that great disaster where we are destroyed. They see that and admit that, and they're terrified. Jesus is king over all things. He is Lord over all the things seen and unseen, and the demons know it, and they know their days are numbered, and they fear Jesus because they know the truth. And the opposite is true for us. We fear Jesus, we fear life, or we're afraid because we don't know the truth, because we don't understand the truth. The demons have so, they, they are justified in being terrified because they understand Jesus. And so our fear is a lack of understanding for those who are forgiven, for those who know Jesus, for those who are loved by him, for those who trust in him. We don't have to be afraid because those who trust in Jesus win with Jesus and have nothing to be afraid of. Faith in Jesus is authority over all things gives us reason to not have fear. There's a scene in, in one of my favorite movies, uh, one of my favorite Disney movies, which is The Lion King, where Simba is caught. He wanders off into the, the land of the hyenas, right? Remember this if you track with me. He, and he's cornered, right? The hyenas are coming up. Simba, he's, Simba's the heir to the kingdom. He's the king's, he's Mufasa's son. He's the king, the king's son and heir to the throne. And he's confident. He has pride, as he should. He's, he's confident, but his confidence is a little overestimated. He's just a little cub, and he can't, he can't uh, fend off the, the hyenas. He would die. So the hyenas corner him into the corner, and they're going to destroy him, and he growls. And it's a really weak growl. They mock him because it's just this pitiful, pitiful growl. And then he growls again, and what they hear is the growl that now Mufasa has, is standing behind him with this loud roar. And it sounds, like, it sounds like Simba is roaring with the roar of his father. And the hyenas are terrified and they scamper off. You see, our, fear, our, our, our not being afraid for what life comes to, what comes to us is not because of our ability. It's not because of our pedigree or our record or our character or our hard work. 
It's because of our Father in heaven. It's because of the God who stands with us and behind us and the strength of God that, that lives in us and dwells within us. And if we know Him, if we understand Him, we don't have to be afraid. No matter what corner you feel backed into, no matter what trouble you're facing, it comes down to a very important point. And that is this. As a follower of Jesus, you are secure. You are secure simply because you are in the hands of the one who has all authority in the world, and he loves you and cares for you very much. God, what confidence do I have that I feel backed into this corner, and I'm afraid, and I'm terrified, and I'm worried? What confidence do I have that I'm going to be okay? God would reply with, because I'm Lord over all, and I love you, and you don't have to be afraid. That's why we need to hear the question that Jesus asks Peter when the storm hits in verse 26. And the question he asks is, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So fear of external circumstances is a result of little faith. It is a symptom of little faith. Why are you afraid? Is if Jesus is saying, why are you worried when I'm your friend and I control everything? See, it's silly, isn't it? You are in my hands every single day. So the question that Jesus would ask you is, why are you afraid of little faith? Why are you afraid of what you are afraid of? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord of that blank in your life? What would it look like to seek him, to trust him, to, to rest in him, to seek understanding in, in who he is? It takes a little bit of digesting passages like this and really understanding what we are to do because of it. And lastly, here is that point that Jesus is Lord over all. Because he is Lord over all, he's worthy of unconditional trust and affection. When Jesus speaks, leprosy and paralysis and storms and demons obey because they know. They know who he is. When Jesus speaks, do you obey? When Jesus speaks to you, do you get calm? When Jesus speaks, do you argue back with him? And say, but you don't understand what I'm going through, but you've never been through this, but, but I just don't know how you're going to handle it. When Jesus speaks, do you listen and do you obey? Have you responded, like Matthew, to the call of Jesus? And I give you a, give you a hint that you have responded to Jesus like Matthew has. And I love that Matthew, who's writing this story, includes his own conversion in this, his own testimony of how he responded to Jesus. Here's how you know that you respond to Jesus in faith. You sense that Jesus is in charge. You sense that Jesus is in control. You know that he is in charge and not you. There's an outside power that is in you that has changed you. There's an outside power that is alien to you. You know you're trusting in Jesus in your life when you know that he is Lord over all. And you know that he's asking for your life. We need to understand what's involved in discipleship, that Jesus is Lord, even if it means that, that we give up comfort, even if it means that he calls us to do things that are, that are ridiculous. This is where we need to begin when thinking about Jesus. If we say, I want to be a Christian, or I, I realize that I really believe in what Jesus has done and said, but I'm not sure on where I stand in this position of Christianity or what Jesus has said. I'm not really sure on where I stand on the sexual ethic or on, on this part of, of, of what, the, what the Bible speaks to in culture. I'm still learning, you know, kind of where, what I believe and, and why. I really want to follow Jesus and I'm a Christian, but I don't really, I can't really reconcile, you know, when good things happen and when bad things happen to good people. 
can't really reconcile when a tornado destroys a community. I can't really reconcile when people are, are kidnapped and bad things happen. I want to know where Jesus stands on these things and how he will answer himself. Do you see how, how this is? What difference does it make what God's opinion is on anything if he is God? What, what difference does it make what he says if he's Lord over all? If Jesus is Lord over all, let me, here's a hypothetical situation. If Jesus is Lord over all, and he says every Wednesday is oatmeal day, and, and you should eat oatmeal every day, and you respond with, you know, I'm kind of doing like a, like a no-carb thing right now. I'm kind of doing a paleo. Have you heard about paleo? It's kind of a new thing, but it's like no oats and, and no carbs, and, and I'm just really doing that right now. But he says, Lord overall says Wednesday is oatmeal day. Who cares if, who cares about what you think about it? Who cares if you're doing a low-carb thing? If he says it, don't you agree that if he's Lord overall, that it should be obeyed no matter what? I mean, this is what Matthew is saying. Because Jesus is Lord overall, who cares what our opinion is about anything? We don't, we don't follow Jesus because we like what, we, what he says. We follow him because he is who he says he is. And then after that, we figure out what he says, and we, and we say amen. We say, you must be good in this. To begin anywhere is backwards. The Bible's not a book of fairy tales. It's, it's not a cookbook for spirituality where we put in different ingredients and work around with it. It's not a book for self-improvement. It's a book about God. It's a book about ultimate reality. It's a book about who he is and what he invites us into. To be confronted with what God says, to see him as Lord, and to be in conflict with what he says is to be in conflict with ultimate reality. Matthew's testimony is personal, and he shares this. And this personal story of his testimony is so important, and it's important that he puts it where he puts it, I think. And Jesus calls Matthew into, he calls him into a new career. He calls him into a new identity. He calls him into a new life and a new existence altogether. Jesus is telling Matthew, it's, it's all or nothing. You know, many people believe that it was easy for the, the disciples to follow Jesus because they were, these, they were poor fishermen, that they had nothing to lose. And so when Jesus said, come, follow me, leave everything, leave your life, leave your family and follow me, it was as if they were saying, finally, a way out of this horrible life. But it was actually quite the opposite. You see, Peter and Andrew were brothers and their father owned a fishing business and they were, they were going to take over the fishing business. And the fishing business in the, in the ancient Near East was a very lucrative and good business. It was, it was a good business. They, were, they had, had, had money waiting for them and prosperity waiting for them. They had a good life. Matthew worked for the government. He was a tax collector. He made a very good wage. To give up all of these things and to follow Jesus was to give up any certainty for any good life in, ahead. The disciples did not leave a life of poverty for something better. They left everything with no guarantee that they would get anything in return. Jesus' authority overall is not simply to be observed and to nod our heads in approval, but to be relied on and to rejoice in and to, be, to rejoice in it. Because here's the truth. If, if Jesus were Lord of all and he were a tyrant, regardless, he would need to be obeyed. But here's the good news. He's not. That Jesus is Lord of all, and he's not a tyrant. That Jesus is Lord of all, and he is good. Jesus is Lord of all, and he is merciful. And he is kind. And I hope you hear what he says. He says, guys, if I am Lord, 
then it doesn't matter how you feel, you have to do what I say. But guess what? I am Lord, and I'm so good. He loves us. And when we learn what he is like, we love him too. He shows us that he is a God of steadfast love, a love that doesn't fail. He is a God that desires us and has an affection for us greater than our affection will ever be for him. He is a God who is humble and kind and doesn't seek his own interests, but the Bible says that he actually, he empties himself of his own honor and glory and his own desire to seek his own benefit, and he dies for us. He is a God who is strong and good. He's a God who's faithful when we are faithless. He, he invites us, the unqualified and the sick, to find new life and rest in him. He lost his life for us so that we could actually find our life in him. Do you see these two positions where Jesus says, I am Lord over all and you need to follow me. And the only response is, un, is, is faithful and unquestionable devotion. But guess what? I'm a physician and I've come to find the sick and I've come to eat with sinners and I've come to mend the brokenhearted and I've come to die for the needy. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. So when we obey Jesus, when we look at him as Lord over all, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to respond like the demons in fear because we know more about him. In fact, the more we know about him, the more we will rejoice in him, the more we will trust in him, the more we will have affection for him. It is like a snowball effect. The more we pursue him and know him, our love and desire and affection and affection for him grows even more. The question is not whether or not Jesus is Lord, but the question is, will you follow him? Will you trust in him? Will you rest in him? Will you obey him? Will you answer his call today like Matthew did? Will you leave everything and put your life in his hands? I hope you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are Lord. And this could, in fact, make us very scared if you were against us. If our sin was accounted against us, like the demons, uh, we would have great reason to be afraid. But if you forgive us, and because, if you love us, if you show us mercy, then we have every reason to rejoice and to be glad. Thank you for pointing us to the truth of who you are. Help us to understand you and to grow in this understanding. Help us to put our hope not in our record or our character, but in who and who you are. Lord, I pray for this meal that you've prepared for us in, in Jesus Christ. This meal, the, the Lord's Supper, where you, you died for our sins, your body was broken and your blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Would you nourish us, nourish us in our hearts? Would you uh, strengthen us in our bodies? Would you help us to understand more clearly what you have done for us so that we would delight in you we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.